When I was younger, I used to ride my bike everywhere. I lived in South Philly, and I worked at a recording rehearsal studio in North Philly. And whether it was rain or shine, snow, sleet, whatever, I rode my bike, partially because I hate SEPTA. <laughs> I worked for them briefly. It's kind of the only real job I ever had. Six months, done. No more real jobs. So I rode my bike everywhere. One cold winter evening, I was riding my bike and uh, got to the co- close to the corner of Fourth and Pine, and I heard some screams, loud screams. When I got to the corner where the old Pine Church Cemetery is, and I turned down and looked down the street, I could see a lady was being mugged. Tall guy was beating her and hitting her in the head, and he was trying to get her pocketbook away from her. And what I saw was him actually getting the pocketbook away from her and her going down. And here he was running at me. And in the moment, I was like, "Ah, what do I do? And I did the first thing I could think of. I took myself and my bike, and I threw it myself in front of him. Well, this guy was probably about 19 years old, maybe 20, I don't know. And he was about 220 pounds, and he was like 6'2", but a young kid, but big and strong and muscular. Uh, before I continue with the story, you guys know me as this. This is kind of how I've looked for the past 10 years. It's 250-plus pound guy, but this is what I look like then. <laughs> So, not the toughest looking guy in the world, and certainly not a badass. (laughs) But, um, I continue. So, I got on my bike, and I rode around the corner, and I started screaming, stop, 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 that guy stole that lady's pocketbook, stop, stop. And it just so happens that another guy was walking down the street this way on on, uh, 4th Street, and just as the mugger came past him, he just stuck out his leg (laughs) and tripped the guy. And all the stuff went everywhere. The guy's pocketbook was all over the ground, and the guy must have hurt himself when he fell because he didn't get right up. Now, I jumped off my bike, and I looked, and this is unbelievable, but this is the truth. There was a gun on the ground. I'm wearing these goofy gloves. I got in this winter coat. And I pick up the gun, and I point it at them, and I go, don't move. And then it comes over me. I'm a black man in Philadelphia with a gun. (laughs) Not a good idea. Plus, the look on the two people's face, particularly the guy who was helping, was utter panic. Like, what is going on? So I slowly put the gun down, and I walk over. And me and the other guy hold this guy down. And all the time he screams, I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything. And what seemed like an eternity before the police came, when they got there, they handcuffed the kid, and they separated me and the other guy. Now, just for the purpose of the story, the other guy was Caucasian. I'm African-American, obviously. And the officer took both of our stories. He took my story first, and I explained to him. I saw the lady get mugged, everything. The police officer, after he took my story... He went over to the kid who was lying on, still lying face down on the cold ground. It's winter. He picks him up. He's handcuffed like this on the ground. He picks him up by the back. He goes, you steal that lady's pocketbook. 
the kid goes, I didn't do anything. And he slams him face down on the ground. And it was at that moment he stopped being the shepherd and started distilling punishment or vengeance. Um, while I was standing there, there were two African-American police officers. And all they were doing was like, yeah, when we get that guy back, we're going to mess him up. We're going to, oh, man, we're going to take him back to the roundhouse. Now, for those of you who aren't native Philadelphians or don't know the story of the roundhouse, the roundhouse is a roundhouse. I'm not sure if it's still there, but it's over by Spring Garden. It's a police station. And historically, it's a place of police brutality. Um, all through the Rizzo administration. If you want to talk to me more about that afterwards, I can tell you tons of stories and information about that. But it, it just dawned on me that the police in that moment were not being good shepherds. They were more interested in vengeance. I often wondered why. I, want, I wonder if it had anything to do with trauma. Where, where were they hurt? Where were they damaged? What was it like? To be a police officer, what is it like to see that kind of trauma every day, day in and day out? I actually made a movie about it, which is not the subject of today's story, but if you're interested, it's called Portraits of Professional Caregivers, and it looks at that. And I wonder if that's the thing that turns someone from being a badass for good to being a badass for bad. The definition of a badass is tough, uncompromising, and intimidating. None of those things on their own are necessarily bad. In fact, there are many badasses among, among us here today who are members of Wellsprings. One that always comes to mind, and who is one of my favorite badasses, and he said it was okay for I mention him, is Steve. <laughs> Steve is total badass. <laughs> He's a fireman, and he rides a Harley. And I am in awe of the fact you are willing to run into a burning building to save people. That is so badass. But as I think about it, <laughs> was I in this story the righteous man who's beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men? Or am I the weak? Or am I my brother's keeper? Or in this case, the lady's keeper who is being mugged? Who gets in their name to strike down with furious anger and lay their vengeance upon the people who beset the people, the weak, walking through the valley of darkness? Who's the shepherd? Was I the shepherd? I want to be the shepherd. Don't know. This whole event really just tossed me and made me very crazy because I felt like I think I did the right thing, but it's still so uneasy, and it sat with me all these years. And for those of you who know, what I was just quoting is Ezekiel 25:17 from the great movie, the classic 1994, and the subject of our spirit flicks today, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite movies. It's not only a guilty pleasure, it's brilliant. Um, when this movie came out in 1994, this may be hard for people who weren't around at the time or didn't see it when it was in the theaters, but this is back in the day when theaters actually held 250 people and every, perform every screening was sold out. In 1994, dollars, this movie made $213.9 million. It cost $8.5 million to make. And it, to me, it seems like it's the last major movie 
made for adults that was a cultural phenomenon. The way Tarantino used music in this film is used by so many people now, you wouldn't even realize that it comes from this. In fact, as I was working on what I was going to say today, I heard commercials on TV, and they're all using all the songs from Pulp Fiction in the way that Tarantino used them. Songs like Rumble or um, uh, what's it called Missaloo, and and all the, and they songs significant say badass. They just they just they just scream that. Now Pulp means it's 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 a, it's defined at the beginning of the movie, but it's. Um, sensational writing that is generally regarded as poor quality. It also comes from the hard-boiled crime novels of the 1920s. And the brilliance of Tarantino is he took those elements along with his love of black exploitation films and karate films from the 70s, and he mixed it all into this thing and created Pulp Fiction. Now, for those of you who've seen the film, there's some challenges with it. There's some problems. I have problems with the film. One, as you know, it's Harvey Weinstein's first movie, and we know he's a predator, and it's not good. Two, and more personal for me, is Tarantino's insistence that he is able to get away with using the N-word without any ramifications, particularly when he inserts himself into the film and his character says them. It drives me crazy, and I think it's unforgivable in a lot of ways, and... Um, that's my problem. I'm sure some other people have other problems with the film. Some people have trouble with the violence in it. But having said all that, I just watched it recently, and it's still one of my favorite films. There's so much in this movie to talk about. I think I could probably do like three or four messages on it because there's so many different directions to go. There's so many different avenues to take. But what I want to talk about and who I want to talk about in this particular message is Jules. Jules Winfield, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Jules Winfield. So for those of you who haven't seen the film, Jules is a hitman. And he's the man who dispenses the vengeance for Marcellus, the mob voice boss. Now, I wonder a lot about Jules because who is he? I mean, he's like the weirdest tough guy. And you're going to go, what do you mean he's the weirdest tough guy? Well, first of all, he has an immense knowledge of baby boomer pop culture. Immense knowledge. I mean, every, every time he has a conversation with someone, he's calling him by some name from some TV show or some band or some quoting some lyric from some song that has to do with pop culture. Now, what strikes me is he's African-American, and they don't say, but it seems like he grew up in Inglewood, which is a poor black neighborhood in, California, in Los Angeles. But he's obsessed with the larger pop white culture. What is that? And... What is up with the jerry curl? <laughs> so those of you who don't know, that's, that's a jerry curl that he has. And um, jerry curls were made popular by Michael Jackson in the early 80s. And it was a hairstyle that a lot of people had. Now, a couple things about a jerry curl that you may not know. A, it's a big pain in the butt to take care of. You have to put lots of spray and liquid stuff in your hair, and you have to wear a cap over top of your head every single night, and every day you have to spray the stuff in it. And to have it done, you have to sit in a salon with curlers in your hair, and you have to wear, they they put this, I want to call it poison in your head, because, no, seriously, I want, this is a really critical thing. 
if you leave it in too long, it burns, and it leaves a scar. And to me, um, Sam Jackson's brilliance in saying that he wanted this character to have a Jericho, I think, speaks to some of the trauma of racism. And, and in the black community, there is this thing called good hair and bad hair, which is another thing I could do a whole message on. I'm not going to go that deep. I'm trying to just try and stay focused. But having his hair this way is kind of trying to sort of pass in a way or make himself look like he's got good hair. Now, I know this very personally because I used to have a jerry curl. <laughs> and I can tell you that it, it was a major political statement for me to go from that to having locks, to being more natural and to being more whole taking both, all the sides of me and being unified, being comfortable with them. So, in the movie Pulp Fiction, one of the things that Sam Jackson's character is obsessed with is this Ezekiel 25:17. Now, the cool thing about this prayer, or the interesting thing about this prayer, is it's not really a prayer. It's Tarantino, again, being a brilliant writer, and also a brilliant thief. Uh, without going into much detail, this entire prayer is lifted from another movie that he is a big fan of from the 70s, which, again, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and start talking about that, but just know he didn't write this prayer. And only the last line of it is uh, from Ezekiel 25:17. The rest of it is from this movie. So can we take a look at this prayer, and let's take a look at the words, and we're going to hear it. Take a moment and recognize that made his career. These, this paragraph is why we all know Sam Jackson to the extent we do, that he is so, and what brilliant delivery, brilliant acting, it's so powerful. Now let's take a look at this. Like, I think the entire movie of Pulp Fiction is actually inside this passage too. You could look at any of the characters and either they are the tyranny of evil men or they're the weak. They're the uh, inequities of the selfish, or those are those out there who in furious anger want to poison and destroy the brothers. And we have Sam Jackson's character who, after witnessing a miracle, has a a pause in his life. He's trying to figure out what this miracle means, and he feels that he has to make a change. He wants to be the shepherd. He wants to be his brother's keeper. But he knows he is the tyranny of evil men. And we'll get back to that in a second, but here's a question 
What does a good shepherd look like? And how do you become a good shepherd? How do you become a badass for good? So a couple years ago, well, maybe more than a couple years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was working with the Dialogue Institute. And the Dialogue Institute, as some of you know, Majid, uh, one of our uh, members of Wellsprings, is on the board of. And I love the Dialogue Institute. The Dialogue Institute is part of the Department of Ecumenical Studies at Temple University, and they foster dialogue from people of different faiths from around the world. One of the things they do that I just absolutely love is they bring in scholars uh, from other countries, particularly monotheistic cultures, and they bring them to the U.S. to discover, to study religious pluralism. Now, just take, I want to take a brief second just to say how amazing this is and how unbelievably lucky we are. We live in a country where people of many, many, many different faiths can all live together and we don't kill each other. It is unbelievable. And the work the Dialogue Institute does to foster this is pretty amazing. So a couple years ago, I was at this um, retreat. It was a conference on interfaith dialogue. And while I was there, I went to hear a Native American elder speak. And one of the things he said that just stuck with me for all these years, he talked about how in his tribe, historically, when the warriors went out to fight, if they had killed someone or if they had killed an animal, they weren't allowed to come directly back to the village. They had to go out and cleanse themselves, purify themselves. They had to mourn the person or persons or animal that they killed. They had to make themselves whole again before they could come back to the community. I thought this is so, so powerful because it does speak to what it means to be a good shepherd, or to be a badass for good. When you are a badass you, for good, you inflict trauma, you feel trauma. But if we don't have a way of dealing with it, you're going to act out, and that trauma, that, that badass, is going to start seeking vengeance instead of justice. They're going to disperse or, or minister, administer punishment. So... The thing that really struck me about the Native American culture and this talk is I don't even think the language I'm using really gets at the core, the point I'm trying to make about this culture. If you could imagine for a moment that you grew up in a culture where that time of meditation that we just had a couple minutes ago was how you were raised, that you were raised from the time of birth to be present. And you were raised to listen to your soul and your body and your mind and the earth and others. And that you were given skills or lessons and the culture supported you being present. Sending you off after you killed someone to heal yourself would not be this overwhelming task. It would be every day. And it would allow you to be complete, to be whole. I think that's the thing that differentiates a badass and a badass for good. That they are able to integrate into the whole all of it. The trauma, the goodness, the healing, all of it is there. So back to Pulp Fiction. The last scene of Pulp Fiction is the diner. 
Now, it's really cool how Quarantino does this. The first scene is the last scene. And then if you don't remember in the first scene, before the credits even roll, it's the British couple who are desperate and they're planning a robbery. It's their last thing that they can do to try and survive. They're going to rob the diner they're sitting in. So jump ahead to the last scene. It's Jules, who is um, uh, Sam Jackson's character, and Vincent Vega, who's John Travolta. And John Travolta's poking at Jules. He's going, yeah, you think you're going to quit? You're not going to stop this life of crime. What are you talking about? Come on, come on. And Jules, again, is pondering this prayer. And he's pondering what he's going to do. And he says, and he says I'm going to wait for God to send me a message, but I'm going to walk the earth and I'm going to do good. I'm going to be of service. Vega, John Volta's character, pokes him some more. Yeah, yeah, right, sure. You're not going to. Come on, come on. And he goes, no, nah, I'm going to be like Kane from, from Kung Fu. And for those of you who don't know Kung Fu, it's a TV show in the 70s about a badass for good. Kane walked the earth with his arms behind his back, very zen. And he would find people, the weak, and he would guide them through the valley of darkness. Now, after Jules and Vincent have this back and forth, Vincent gets up to go to the bathroom. The British couple from the beginning of the movie do their robbery. They come over to Jules, who's sitting at the table. And through a series of discussion, calls him Ringo, honey bunnies in the back with the gun pointing. It's like a crazy scene. But he comes back again to this passage. And this time, he doesn't recite it as he did, we heard. He says it quietly. And at the end, he asks the question. He goes, you know, I keep, I've asked myself, you know, I've said this a million times, but I've never given it really much thought until today because I witnessed some stuff go down. And, you know, after, he says, after I would read this to somebody, I'd have to pop a cap in that. So you're very lucky you're catching me on this day. <laughs> and he looks, he says, I, I, I wonder, am I, the, right, am I the inequities of selfish men? If Mr. Colt 45 here is the tyranny of evil men, or are you the, are you the, uh, the, the, the sheep that are guided through the dark valley of darkness? And Woody comes to he goes, no. I'm the tyranny of evil men, and you are the weak. But I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. And think about it, after all the carnage, after all the stories in the, that happens in this film, this is basically the last line of the film. He says, but I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Because after that, he lets the British couple leave. He actually buys, he says, he buy, I'm buying something from you. He says, I'm buying your soul. I think he's buying his soul. Because he lets them go. He doesn't kill them. And then Vincent says, the actual last line of the film, he goes, I think we better go. And Jules says, I think you're right. But that line before, in the way Sam Jackson delivers it, he goes, trying real hard to be the shepherd. Mother Teresa said that every day when she woke up, she recognized that there was a little angel and a little Hitler inside of her. And every day she had to make the choice to decide whether she was going to be a badass for good or a badass for bad. And then I think inside of all of us, each and every one of us, we have a little assassin. 
we have skills, we have talents, we have abilities that we can choose to use for good. And I like what Ken said a few weeks ago about what good is. Good is being in service of. Being in service of and in service to. Bad, I think, is to tear down, rip apart. In the writing of this uh, message, I've talked to a lot of people. <laughs> hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? So Sally and I were sitting. Sally is my girlfriend and partner, and we were sitting at the dining room table. And um, I asked her, when do you think it's okay to be violent? And, of course, she never. You can never be violent. Violence is bad. It is wrong. You should never, ever, ever be violent. Now, I want to preface this by saying that we were having this conversation at the dinner table living room, dining room table, after her and her daughters had spent the day, spent the day throwing axes. (laughs) That's right, Sally was throwing axes, and when she came home, she was giddy. She was, oh, it was so good, I want to do it again. That's why my nickname for her is Lagatha from the Vikings, she's like a little Viking. But I said to her, well, what if someone was after your kids? And she went, she got very serious and said, oh, right, yes. Then it's on. <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, yeah, the axes come out, right? Yeah. So we all have a badass in us, and it's up to us to decide what we fight for. Now, I would be not doing a good job if I didn't mention that there is a badass for good in the news this week. And I just want to mention her very quickly. It's this person, Megan Rapino, total badass for good. She meets all the criteria. She's, she's, let me just make sure I got my definition right. She is tough, uncompromising, and intimidating. So she definitely makes the list of being a badass. But what makes her a badass for good is I think she's an amazing leader. One of the things I love that she did this week was when everyone was coming to her asking her questions about equal pay for women, she led, she tried to anyway, lead everyone into a new conversation that was welcoming and inclusive. That's what a badass for good does. Not only recognize that there are times to be tough and times where you have to stand up for yourself or stand up for others, but also when it's time to open up and welcome others in and be a conduit for moving the story forward. So as I said earlier, there are many, many badasses in our congregation, and all of us have the potential to be, but I want to tell you one more story before I end, and that is the story of Pete. Pete Higgins who is, and his wife Kathleen, as you both know, are uncompromising, let me just look at this again, I think this really, they are tough, uncompromising, and intimidating around the issue of gun violence. Um, You can ask them more questions, because again, I don't have time to go into a long story about how badass they both actually are, but last, I think it was January, I invited them both over to my studio to interview them for a podcast that I do called Music for the New Revolution. And um, in that podcast, the episode was focused on guns. And Pete relayed a story to me, and I hope I'm doing this justice, Pete, when I tell the story 
but if I get it wrong, you can correct me later. <laughs> Even though it'll be too late. But <laughs> So Pete relayed to me that uh, there was a law that Delaware was trying to pass that would allow for them to um, account for the guns that people owned. And, of course, the NRA and the gun lobby was completely against this. They were like, no, you can't do this against the... The, you know, the amendment, you can't know what we have. But Pete, the thing you may not know about Pete, is not only is he a, a, a dedicated anti-gun violence person, advocate, but he also is a gun owner and a gun enthusiast. Again, going back to the thing I said earlier, encompassing the whole, being whole, bringing it all together so that you have all the sides of yourself. Well, because Pete was a gun owner and gun enthusiast, he knew that the NRA had insurance for people who owned guns. And this insurance, well, they had to collect the information or how else would they be able to pay out if your gun was stolen or lost or damaged. So Pete, along with a lot of other documentations, went to testify. And once he showed this information, what could they say? And the law was passed. So Pete, you are definitely... A badass for good. Awesome. So may we find a way to tap into the inner badass and find a way to integrate and accept all the totality of ourselves and the strength to heal the trauma and the hurt, both that we inflict and that's been inflicted upon us. Mind, body, and spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Spirit, may you guide all of us to find the strength, support, and community to help you be the badass for good. And thank you, thank all of you, congregation, for allowing me to realize a childhood dream of preaching a service and a message. Thank you. Amen.